Good morning. Thank you for that very nice welcome, especially coming from some who are like, who's, who's he? What happened to the pastor I came here to see? But uh, I was very excited and flattered when I was offered the opportunity to participate in this great series we've been doing, where each week we take a look at a different person from the Bible, a different character. And as I was uh, sitting where you are listening and learning, what occurred to me is that a series like this is so valuable because as we listen to and talk about, read about these people's lives, we don't just get to know about them, we get to know God. We learn about the character of God because through these people's life experiences, we see the way in which God calls people, equips them, chastises them, loves, forgives, and transforms them. And we'll be seeing those things today as well. Now I'm going to begin our time together with a question for you to think about. Do you think that we can become so reliant on our eyes to guide us, to help us decide what's true and what's real, that it can actually hinder our ability to see things that cannot be perceived through our natural sight? That inasmuch as, for example, the Bible teaches that God is spirit and that in addition to our temporal world, which we all know, that there's also a very real and very vast spiritual realm, well, how would we ever come to recognize such things if we had only physical sight to guide us? We wouldn't. We would need something more. Which brings us to our story today about a person who arguably had more influence on Christianity than any other human being in history, that would be the Apostle Paul. And as we compare Paul's life Before he became a follower of Jesus with his life after, what we'll see is a person and a life that's been radically transformed from an enemy of the gospel to one of its greatest emissaries. And not because of anything Paul did, mind you, such as by virtue of his own strength or the fortitude of his own will, but solely on account of the transforming power of God, an inexhaustible resource that's available to each and every one of us today, right now. So in order for us to appreciate just how dramatic Paul's transformation was, let's start by looking at what his life was like before he ever became an apostle. Apostle, by the way, literally means messenger or sent one. Well, Paul was born somewhere around AD 5 in the city of Tarsus in the Roman province of Cilicia. That's where today, present-day Turkey. As were all the apostles, Paul was Jewish. His Hebrew name was Shaul. In English, we translate Saul. And he also had a Roman name, which was Paulus. In English, we translate Paul. And the custom of dual names was actually quite commonplace back then. And that's why, for example, in Acts 13.9, it refers to the apostle as Saul, who is also called Paul. And Acts 12 talks about John, who is also called Mark. So at times throughout, I might refer to him as Paul. Other times, I might refer to him as Saul. You shouldn't be confused. I'm talking about the same person. And similarly, I'll also be using the terms Christ and Messiah interchangeably because they both mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one, referring to God's anointed servants. So we know that Paul was raised and became a Torah-observant Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he calls himself in Philippians 3. At some point while he was still young, his family moved to Jerusalem where Paul received his formal Jewish education. 
And we know that from Acts 22, where Paul talks about having grown up in Jerusalem under the tutelage of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a well-renowned leader, a first-century leader and rabbi. In fact, Gamaliel went on to become the leader of the Pharisaic party of the Jews, which was the most influential. It was a religious party, not a political party. And so Gamaliel was undoubtedly the most influential Jew of his day. So influential was he that it was very unprecedented, but he ended up becoming co-chair of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling court, along with the high priest. So from a first century Jewish perspective, Paul had like the very best Jewish education available. And because he was the pupil of such a high-ranking Pharisee, Paul himself would have become very entrenched in Pharisaic tradition and Pharisaic mindset. And while schooled as a Pharisee, Acts 18 tells us that Paul was actually a tent maker by trade. This is not at all unusual, as Jewish sons were normally taught a trade to supplement their studies. In fact, there's an ancient rabbinic saying, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him banditry. But what Paul was most noted for prior to becoming a follower of Christ was his extreme persecution of Jesus' followers, the church. And we might ask ourselves, why was this? We read about this in Acts 7, 8, and 9, and we think, was Paul some sort of depraved individual? Well, the answer can be found, I think, if we put together several bits of information. And the first would be Paul's own description of his former self, which we find in the book of Galatians. Chapter 1, starting verse 13, Paul writes, If you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. <clears throat> what makes this remark so telling is that in Romans 10, Paul said that his Jewish brethren all had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. So in other words, the Jews of the day were all very zealous for the things of God, misguided though they were. And yet here, Galatians, Paul tells us that his zeal surpassed them all. And what was he so zealous about? We see in verse 14, his ancestral traditions. And by that, Paul's referring to the unique interpretation of the Mosaic law that had been developed by the Pharisees and which was continuing to be developed and passed down orally for several hundred years. So it was these traditions that Paul so zealously embraced and was prepared to defend just as zealously. And secondly, we also need to remember it had only been a few years now since the Sanhedrin had voted to condemn Jesus of blasphemy. And that's what had precipitated his trial, then from there his execution. And as a strict Pharisee, Paul would naturally have aligned himself with their ruling, which had the effect of rendering Jesus' teaching, and by extension that of his followers, as being incompatible with the law. But let's not forget, too, that the early church was comprised entirely of Jews. There were no Gentile followers of Christ until we get to the events of Acts 10, which may have been as many as 10 years after the church was first birthed at the Feast of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. So how does a superzealous traditionalist like Paul respond when he sees thousands of Jews going around spreading a doctrine that he sees as anathema to true Judaism? Well, he tries to stop it. Paul got himself appointed uh, supervisor over, <coughs> excuse me, a squad of religious police, if you will, whose job it was to harass, persecute, beat, and even jail 
Jews who were promulgating what the Sanhedrin had already labeled heresy. So <clears throat> we shouldn't mistake Paul's participation in this first persecution of the infant church for some sort of malicious sadism. Rather, it represented a misguided mission to protect that which Paul perceived to be sacrosanct, the traditions of the Pharisees. By Paul's way of thinking, those traditions represent the truth, and Paul was prepared to persecute those he saw as a threat to that truth. And being the zealous sort he was, Paul's opposition to the fledgling church took on a kind of missionary nature. And by that I mean Paul would travel to other cities armed with documents from the chief priest authorizing him to arrest and bring back to Jerusalem to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews who were spreading the gospel. Damascus, a city some 150 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, was one such city. And ironically, he was on his way there to carry out his misguided mission that the Lord chose to confront Paul and his life was forever changed. That momentous event, which we'll look at in just a moment, is commonly referred to as Paul's Damascus Road experience or sometimes simply just as Paul's conversion. And the importance of Paul's conversion can hardly be overestimated. Luke, our historian who chronicled the events that we now have come to refer to as the Book of Acts, details the events of Paul's conversion three times in his writing. So this threefold repetition is a clear indication of the enormous significance of Paul's conversion. We might ask, just how significant is it? Well, here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about it and still gleaning spiritual truth from it. So let's take a look now at Saul's Damascus Road experience, as was first recorded in chapter 9 of Acts by Luke. I have uh, help from my friend Steve uh, Aiken, and uh, he's going to read a passage first. I'll comment and back and forth. So he's going to begin in uh, Acts 9, verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? So close is the union of Christ with his church that we're taught in Colossians 1.18 that the church and the body of Christ are one and the same. Hence, as we see here, to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. And he, and he said, Who are you, Lord? Saul's question is quite revealing. Despite years of study and advancement in Judaism, only now as Paul's being overwhelmed with this divine encounter, does he suddenly realize he doesn't really know God after all? He might have known about him, but he's never known him in a personal way. And just as later, he would come to concede that his fellow Jews didn't really know God either. Well, here was no doubt the moment of Paul's revelation when he realized that he too lacked that same knowledge of God. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Well, we can't even imagine how shocking that response was to Saul, inasmuch as it was Jesus he had been persecuting in his misguided attempts to serve God. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and, through his, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus 
named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and king and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So God's sovereignty clearly shown here because he already has a plan for Saul's life and Saul will fulfill that plan. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So what's interesting is, by virtue of Ananias laying his hands on him in obedience to the Lord, Saul is now identified with the very people he had been persecuting. And note also that throughout the entire conversion process, Damascus Road experience, that the Lord refers to the apostle exclusively as Saul. He's not called Paul once, both during and even after his conversion, he's still Saul. So my point is that Saul did not turn into Paul as a result of his conversion, as is oftentimes assumed. Now to add even a little more color to what's going on here, a little backdrop will be helpful. And for that, if we turn to the Hebrew Scriptures, we find that when the Messiah would come, one of his primary tasks would be to open blind eyes. So for that, let's take a look at Isaiah 42, where the Lord speaking through the prophet says, Behold my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people to open eyes that are blind. So with this mission of Christ in mind, of the Messiah in mind, let's take note again of how Saul's conversion progressed. So we know that before he set out on the road to Damascus, you know, Paul had physical sight, but no spiritual sight. He was spiritually blind. Second, upon his encounter with the Lord, Saul was rendered physically blind to match his spiritual blindness. And third, as a result of the revelation of who Jesus is, Saul now received from the Lord spiritual sight, even as he remained physically blind. And finally, after Ananias laid his hands on him, Saul's physical sight was restored to match his newly given spiritual sight. So while Isaiah foretold, chapter 42, that the Messiah, when he came, one of his key tasks was to give sight to the blind, and indeed the Gospels record instances where Jesus healed people of various afflictions, including physical blindness, What we now begin to see is that the type of sight Jesus primarily came to provide is spiritual sight, so that people might see and be saved. Because to be spiritually blind is to not know Jesus. And inasmuch as Jesus declared, I and the Father are one, to not know Jesus is to not know God. 
Saul's religious background, education, had unfortunately been so focused on the traditions of the Pharisees, what the scribes of old had taught, that he failed to fully understand what Moses and the prophets had taught. And so he missed the truth. And the truth was that Messiah had been sacrificed, excuse me, Messiah had come, been sacrificed and raised from the dead all according to scripture. The truth is that Jesus is that Messiah. And that's the truth that God wants us all to see because as he declared, the truth will set you free. Free from what? What does he mean? Free from the penalty of sin and death. That's salvation. Throughout the Bible, we see God often characterized by any number of his particular attributes. Somewhere in the passage in the Bible, it says God is love. Another passage says God is gracious. In 1 John chapter 1, it says God is light. And when God chose to manifest his presence, the Saul on the road to Damascus, that light literally blinded him. But that's the way he chose to work in Saul's life. He works in each of our lives differently according to what we need. In the case of Saul, he needed to have his physical sight rendered inoperative for a while so that he would be forced to see through spiritual eyes that the Lord was about to open. Only after he had received spiritual sight did the Lord then restore his physical sight to him. So here's a question you might find interesting, especially if you've not read this passage, you're not familiar with these things. So once Saul recovered from this mind-boggling experience and had his physical sight back, what did he do? Did he think, let me get the heck out of this crazy place and go back to my familiar surroundings and pretend the whole thing never happened? Did he perhaps feel sorry for himself, wallowing in the fact that everything he had once been so invested in was now shot to pieces? Well, let's pick up the story in Acts 9 and find out. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So, as we see, Saul had no regrets. His sovereignly orchestrated transformation was already underway. As a result, gone was any notion of that agenda he had come to Damascus with, replaced entirely with the brand new objective, namely wanting to share the revelation of the gospel that he himself had just received. Note also, by the way, in verse 22, who it is that the text says kept increasing in strength? Saul. Saul referred to as Saul. This is now a week after his conversion. In fact, the apostle will not be referred to as Paul until we get to Acts 13, when Saul's about to embark on his first missionary journey into the world of the Gentiles, where then the use of his Roman name will become more appropriate. We had seen previously how Saul's zeals for truth had taken on a missionary spirit whereby he traveled to all kinds of cities in the hopes of stopping the spread of the gospel. Well, now the Lord takes that zeal, missionary spirit, and channels it into a very new commission, one that would facilitate the spread of the gospel. Let's look at Acts 26. And the Lord said to Paul, For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, 
rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So as we see, Saul is now to be God's chosen instrument whom the Lord would send and use to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they too might see and be saved. As the remainder of Paul's life, the rest is, as they say, history. Literally, you can read about it in the book of Acts. Paul's encounter with the living God that day transformed him completely from a persecutor of the gospel to one of his greatest proponents. Paul would go on to spend approximately nine years undertaking five different missionary journeys, if you count his trips to Rome and Crete, where during that time, he was fulfilling his mission of bringing the good news of Jesus to the nations. And during these travels, he would visit some 48 cities and found at least some 14 churches. And so thoroughly committed was Paul to this mission that he kept at it even as he had to endure various kinds of persecutions, beatings, attempts on his life, imprisonment. Paul was thrown in jail twice. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea, and then after a brief <coughs> excuse me, reprieve, he would come to spend the last year of his life incarcerated in Rome. And yet through it all, Paul always remained faithful. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, during all this time traveling on land and sea, being shipwrecked, running for his life, and even while in prison, Paul would come to write approximately half of the New Testament's 27 books. So all in all, the positive impact Paul has had on Christianity is perhaps second only to Jesus' own. So what shall we say that we have to learn from the life of the Apostle Paul? I think many things actually, but here's where I'd like us to focus. We see, first of all, that anyone can receive God's love and forgiveness because it's not earned, but bestowed freely. But even more than that, we see that anyone, even the worst among us, can become a faithful and powerful witness for Christ. When you think about it, Paul's about as far from the Lord as one could be. His whole life had been dedicated to trying to destroy the very church God wanted to build. And yet in the end, after his encounter with the Lord, Paul would go on to become a role model, an example for us of a committed servant of the Lord, a person filled with the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, who acts with prudence and temperance. So talk about a turnaround story, but that's the transforming power of God. In fact, the book of Acts ends as follows with this description of the way Paul had now chosen to live out his life. Acts 28. <clears throat> Welcoming all who came to him, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this verse epitomizes Paul's newfound life in Christ. How did he want to spend his days now that he had met the Lord? He was eager and unafraid to tell as many people as he could about Jesus, how he'd opened his eyes, how he had saved him and changed his life. For how many of us would this description hold true? Now, I'll be perfectly honest and admit that when I first became a believer in Jesus, sharing my newfound faith was about, <coughs> excuse me, the last thing I wanted to do. I'm Jewish. 
Jewish family, Jewish relatives. 99% of my friends were probably Jewish. And I was sure that they didn't want to hear anything about Jesus. And certainly they wouldn't want to hear that I had now become a follower. I mean, what would they think? I'd been brainwashed, lost my mind altogether, gone and joined a cult. Surely they'd assume that I had turned my back on my Jewish culture and heritage to embrace something foreign. But of course, if Jesus is who he said he was, the one foretold by Moses and the prophets, one that God said would come through the lineage of King David, then how could believing in him be un-Jewish? It's exactly the Jewish thing to believe. In fact, it's what God wants all people to believe because the Savior was promised to come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I said to myself, my friends are not going to understand this. So I remained in quite a quandary for a while as I vacillated between, well, knowing I can't keep this a secret and yet wondering what sort of response, reaction was I going to get? Was I going to be shunned by family? Would I lose friends? Let me tell you, there's no small amount of guilt and embarrassment that initially comes along with being a Jewish person who's lived out an authentic Jewish life before the world and suddenly you become a follower of the one in whose name so-called Christians have persecuted Jews for centuries. Yet, like Paul, I knew there was no going back. My spiritual eyes were now open. I saw that the only path was to keep going forward. Yet, I just wasn't sure how to do it. So this is when I began regularly reading my Bible and praying for guidance. So one day, my daily Bible reading brings me to the sixth book of the New Testament, the book of Romans. So I open it up, and there I am in chapter 1. And who wrote this book? Paul. And I get down to verse 16, and here's what I read. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, i got to tell you that that statement like, jumped off the page at me. It was like it was there, written for me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Like Paul understood why I might be embarrassed to share my faith, why I might be reluctant and want to shrink back out of fear of being ostracized. Because I knew that Paul had spent years sharing the gospel with both Jew and Gentile. And he understood very well that the initial reaction is one of rejection of the gospel, particularly by the Jewish community. But it was like Paul was telling me, don't worry, brother. We don't need to be ashamed. And suddenly there was like a glimmer of hope. So I had to know how it is that Paul was able to share the gospel without any shame or embarrassment. Because I could relate to Paul. You know, Jewish person, putting his faith in Christ had cost him his position, his power, his prominence, his prestige within Jewish society. I felt like I was on the verge of that very same outcome, and yet Paul had kept pressing on. I needed to know how. So as I read on, I see that actually that full verse reads... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So it turns out that the word translated power here is the Greek word dunamis, from where we get our words dynamo, dynamic, and dynamite. And what Paul's saying is that the gospel is imbued with a power, not just any kind of power, but the power of God. And that's a power that's beyond our comprehension. And that's why the gospel is able to save and regenerate all who believe it because it's the power of God. So by and by, I began to understand. 
And there came a point where I was like, oh, so that's why Paul wasn't ashamed. He understood he wasn't peddling some wishy-washy, feckless philosophy. On the contrary, he had been given a message of redemption from God himself, so powerful that it had the ability to change lives, save souls. How did Paul know this? Because it had completely saved and transformed him. You see, we don't just adopt a new philosophy or adhere to a new set of ethics when we become a follower of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4 tells us the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. That's why the gospel is transformative. That's why even a murderer can become an apostle. That's why anyone who puts their faith in Jesus' substitutionary atonement is saved. If you put your faith in Christ, he will take you out of the kingdom of darkness and bring you into his kingdom of light. And yet the transformation doesn't end there. So once I began to understand what Paul meant when he said the gospel is the power of God, I realized, hey, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. In fact, what I have is something so awesomely powerful that everyone else needs. Now, talking about the Lord is probably my favorite thing to do, even more than playing chess. You know, it was quite a long time ago when I first heard the gospel, and it was from my Jewish mother, of all people, a Christian friend of hers, had led her to the Lord. And when my mother first shared the gospel with me, I, I, I was so upset. I remember inwardly vowing that I will never come to believe this. I thought she had lost her mind. But unbeknownst to me, just from having heard the gospel message, the power of God was already at work in me. Because some months later, as I had set out, I had this plan to read and study the Bible myself to prove her wrong. I guess you could say my plan backfired. Because instead of confirming that which I had been taught about Jesus, the Word of God actually opened my eyes, and I came to the stunning conclusion that the gospel was true. And of course, the power of God was still at work in me continues to be. It says in Philippians 1, he who has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, it wasn't that much later as I shared with you <clears throat> that I was praying and wondering, God, will I ever be able to really go public about my faith in Christ as a Jew? Well, here today I stand before you essentially preaching the gospel. It's remarkable. It's transformative. It's the power of God. And so I want to encourage all of you that are here today. If you've never taken the Lord up on his free offer of eternal life through faith in what Jesus has done for you, then I encourage you to do just that. To pray and ask God to open your eyes that you too might see and believe. And then instead of being estranged from God, you'll become a child of God. And I also want to encourage those of you who are already followers of Christ to be eager and courageous about sharing your faith knowing that the good news we've been entrusted to share has the power to touch and impact lives. The gospel saves from sin and death. It has the power to heal the brokenhearted, to encourage the discouraged, to deliver from addiction, to turn enemies into friends. Pray that God would use you to share the good news of Jesus the Messiah with others so that they too would experience the transforming power of God in their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the written record of so many who've come before us. 
ordinary people like us whose lives were changed when they chose to put their faith in you and how you use them to touch the world for time and eternity. And Lord, we pray that with your help, we too would be about our Father's business and that we would impact those around us for good. May spending regular time with you in prayer and in your word ever sharpen our spiritual eyesight that we would see you at work in our lives and draw comfort from that. And Lord, for those who have not yet called upon your name, I pray that you would draw them as only you can, that they too would respond and in seeing, believe and be saved. And we ask and pray in the matchless name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.